0: word, continuing through the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 18, and I will read to the end of that chapter, 18, Revelation 18, verses 9 through verse 24, the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her, her being Babylon, that I contend to be Jerusalem lived luxurious with her, will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet. Every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, marble, And cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster All who travel by ships sailing, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? They threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you, holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, Trumpets shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman or any or of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore, and the voice of bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants, the great men of the earth. For by your sorcery all nations were deceived and in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's word. Lord, we come to you this morning and we would ask rightly that through this means of grace, this means whereby you open and close the door of the kingdom unto men and women, that it would be opened And that we might be called and nurtured and strengthened. Help us, Lord, to worship the right thing. To mourn rightly as you have taught us. And to have our treasure not in the stuff of earth. Lord, but that treasure, may we lay it up. Where thief may not break in and steal. Where moth and rust cannot destroy. May we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven as we seek to glorify the King of all, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, mighty God, everlasting Father, our Prince of peace, Christ himself. And so it is in his name we ask all of these things. Amen. I've heard it put two ways. When you look at Psalm 115 and Psalm 135, they both express to us this principle, you are what you worship, or you become what you behold. And from that first great temptation, the allurement was not merely something sweet and delicious. It was to live a life that was not dependent upon God for blessing. Now we may count, even for our children, that great act of maturity when they are no longer depending upon their parents, but they go out and make a life for themselves. And we look at that and we say, well done. But how quickly that labor and dependence And pride in a job well done. And as the scriptures themselves say, a workman is due his wages, pay him, and in a timely fashion, for the things for which we labor become the things that own us. The great tendency of all men is to worship the creation and not the creator, or to worship creation above the creator to desire too strongly or to trust too much in the stuff of earth. And I would put into that category, the stuff of earth, the promises of wicked men for safety, for comfort. And many, many a God-fearing man has allied himself with the wicked in order to maintain Comfort and peace and safety. That is what Israel did in their idolatry. This is what Israel did with Rome. And this is what she did with many nations and gods before Rome. Israel had become just like that nation that had taken her into captivity. She had been consumed with idolatrous harlotry. She, that woman of immorality, in the beginning of Revelation chapter 18, we now read of the nature of her fall and why it was that the men of earth mourned her destruction. Two points that I want to make this morning. The first, when goods are your God. When goods are your God. And then second, a different kind of rejoicing. A different kind of rejoicing. Let's take up this first point. When goods are your God. Romans chapter 1. Paul speaks of the nature in which God gives to men in their rebellion exactly what they ask for. And that the giving up of men to their idols is itself a kind of judgment. It is judgment. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 24, we read, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul writes this to explain the true condition of every human heart, and it is especially true of those who, knowing the truth, suppress that truth and exchange it for something untrue. Now, this is true not only for those who have never heard the gospel, because the truth that they exchange is the truth that there is a God who made all things in a kind of natural revelation, and a kind of common grace, and they are therefore judged as rebels. It is especially true... If you grew up under the gospel, if you grew up under the preaching of the word, if you grew up under the warnings of God not to rebel, knowing exactly what would happen if you did, that is a special kind of hard-heartedness. And this is what Israel was guilty of. Not just the inclination of every sinful man... But when God says to Israel, if you do this, you will live, if you don't do that, and if you do something else, you will die, they chose the rotten fruit, the wretched way. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And so it wasn't just the error of Babel, of Egypt, of Babylon, because it was the error of Israel. The judgment of God was especially fierce and much of the book of Revelation contains an outline, a description of that judgment because now that the new church has revelation, John is imploring them, look at the destruction of Jerusalem and do not go that way. How did they get there? Well, through what I would call the commoditization of religion. You and I, dear saints, are not susceptible to the evil of capitalism. Right? This is a lie that there is some kind of moral status as it relates to the free market. What men do is they take everything that God has given and we devise a way to corrupt it. As soon as we have it, greed tends to rear its ugly head, and we are consumed with the getting of more of the things that we have. And why do we do that? Because there's safety there. There's safety. There is pleasure to be had with the stuff of earth. And so what we find Israel doing and the sub and substance of what they found to be important is listed here in Revelation chapter 18. Now, Israel is the one who is described as the great city that is coming to an end, that is falling. And here John lists all of the things that God is taking away from them that they thought were in fact the sum and substance of what they had to offer the world. And it was not the stuff mentioned. And so in verse 9, the kings who were buying and selling and trading with Israel, mourned that she was falling. But they were not mourning as they ought. They were mourning her because this economic center of trade was going away. She was gone. They worshipped the wrong thing. Now, God desires, as he says in the book of Deuteronomy, for Israel to be a nation that does not borrow but lends. A nation that has goods while other nations have nothing. Because the light of God's law, rightly kept, results in real, in time, temporary fruit. Real wealth. Real provision. This is the whole chapter of Deuteronomy chapter 28. If you seek first Christ's kingdom and his righteousness, all of that stuff will be given to you. But if you seek those things first, guess what will be taken away from you? The favor of God. Israel put the cart, as it were, before the horse. And because they did this, because they pursued their selfish, wicked affections... Because they made of themselves the religion of things, the things that stood in the way of true practice of receiving the Messiah were taken away from them. And that is what we find. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because in verses 12 through 13, all of the things that Israel thought gave her structure, stability, strength, honor... We're the mere things of earth. Just the stuff of earth. Again, this does not mean that God desires for saints to be um, aesthetics, mere sort of de- devoting themselves to poverty, like the monks, where the mere holding on to things that possessions are themselves in and of themselves wicked. They are not. But the way in which Israel lost their religion was by worshiping the things of earth more than the one who made them. That is the commoditization of religion. Or that is the religion of making commodities your God. And the reason for that is simple. More stuff means more security. But the great treasure that Israel had to offer the world was not first and foremost gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, wood, and all of these great things, livestock and oil. It was what? It was the law of God revealed to men. God is the one whom you should serve, and no other. And so when stuff becomes your master, God looks at that and says, No, I'm sorry. That is not the way it works. And in order to glorify himself, what God will do, either unto redemption Or here, unto just judgment, is he will take away the things that you hid behind as a security for your soul, like the rich man who built barns saying, soul, now you have security. And in fact, it's ironic that we read in verse 14, the fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you. And just before that, In according, uh, uh, as part of those lists, all of the things that are taken away, wheat, this is verse 13, end of verse 13, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. It's all cataloged as stuff, which is why Israel practiced the religion they practiced at the temple when Jesus overturned the tables, because it had become a religion of wealth and commodity. Now, the way that this commonly affects pastors is the commoditization of persons. And what I mean by that is this. When your pastor is sitting up here and he sees people coming in on Sunday morning, I am challenged to think about two different things. The first thing, the primary thing that I should be thinking of is that God is calling me into his presence with the saints and that I have this high and holy calling to lead the saints in the worship and yet my brain keeps thinking, how many people are going to be here on Sunday morning? Where are they? What's going on? Why are they not here? Why are they late? What's happening? And instead of seeking to think about leading the the saints in worship, what am I thinking about? My own sanity. My own... There's a hundred people here. I can say there's a hundred people here. This is why pastors are often given to commoditizing the souls of the people and then approaching ministry as whatever works, that's the way we're going to do it. Which is why many churches have substituted the reading of God's word as a call to worship for a sweet, clean electric guitar solo. One of the reasons, you know, people say, why don't you stream your services? I'm like, do you really want the service streamed? Do you really want a mic picking up what we're doing? Have you ever recorded yourself before? Do you know why people hire professional musicians to come and play for their churches? Because it sounds better on camera, on the mic. That the worship of the saints is meant to be enjoyed live. And when I say live, I don't mean live and in Gastonia. Reformation OPC. There is a sense in which the church is always thinking in a not in a way that is wholesome and good. What does the world see? How can we package this for the shelf and so when people come and the first question is um or thought is i'm not sure if this resonates with me my what i really want to say to them is i don't care whether or not you come and are fed has everything to do with whether or not you have an appetite for what is good or not parents we do this even at the table with our children right right If you only fixed the foods your children ate, what would it be? Kraft macaroni and cheese and chicken nuggets. I would say, can I get an amen? But I know you're Presbyterians and you'd botch it. (laughs) You'd botch the delivery. But what God is endeavoring to do through the mission and work of the church is to bless... The Lord says this, if you keep the Lord's day, if you um, bring your tithe with joy in your heart, if you devote yourself to my kingdom and my righteousness, he says this in the book of Isaiah, you have no idea how much blessing you will receive. But we, like children, often think in which way? I'll learn to eat my vegetables later. I want the blessing now. And once God has sort of captured my heart with his blessing, then I will obey. One of the formal expressions of this was sonship theology that sort of took root 25 years ago. This idea that God simply wants our hearts and he does. But God should not have to buy our hearts with stuff before we notice his covenant faithfulness. And so Jerusalem had traded the way the world thinks of wealth for the way God wanted them to think of it. I will give it to you, but covenant faithfulness is the foundation of that. And so what happened? God wasn't just taking away their treasures. What he was doing is he was tying them around his, their neck like a millstone, and they were being judged through them. That's what we find at the end. Then a mighty angel took a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea. Of this, it's an expression of Jeremiah 51. Jeremiah was writing to Israel, and he was saying, if you continue to go after the gods of this earth, now it shall be when you have finished reading this book, that you shall tie a stone to it and throw it out into the Euphrates. Then you shall say, thus Babylon shall sink and not rise from the catastrophe that I will bring upon her, and they shall be weary. This is why I'm saying this is about Jerusalem, because Jeremiah 51 is about Jerusalem. And what Jeremiah wanted Israel to do was to take Jeremiah, the book, obviously this is more than the book of Jeremiah, to tie it around them symbolically a stone and throw it in the river, symbolizing thus shall it be for you if you do not repent. Jerusalem had been altogether condemned through her unwholesome affections for the things of Rome. Now the reason why Jerusalem allied themselves with Rome against the Messiah despite hating Rome and wishing to be free from her was because Rome had something to offer Jerusalem that they really wanted. Wealth. And I think the question we often need to ask ourselves is, when the gospel, when covenant faithfulness, when the rubber hits the road, are we willing to forsake Temporary treasure for eternal promises. And the way in which you answer that question is, what do you mourn for when it is taken away? And to what extent do you mourn for it? Now, there was a wonderful book uh, written by an author named Sheldon Van Aukent. I've spoken of this book before to many of you. And in this book, you actually have two unbelievers. They lived and knew. They lived in England. They're Americans living in England. They studied at Oxford, and they were good friends with C.S. Lewis. Well, these two, at the time, unbelievers, had this wonderful concept, and that concept was called the shining barrier. When they got married, this is what they said to each other. We are not going to hold fast to the stuff of earth so much that we allow our possessions to interrupt the peace of our marriage. So they would do things like when they bought a beautiful Triumph sports car. Now, if you got a brand new car, what do you say to your kids as it relates to food and drink? If I see crumbs in this car, you're going to get it. Well, what did they do? The day they got this brand new British Roadster They went outside with a ball-peen hammer and dented the chrome bumper. So then they could say, it's not new anymore. Because they saw that if they allowed that thing to come between them, it would damage their relationship. Now, these are unbelievers. But the principle is easily applied to our relationship, not only with one another, right? Even to the church church. How dare you? I mean, how long was this carpet clean? 30 seconds. Right? And every Sunday, it gets dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. Yeah. <laughs> and y'all are the reason. You know, they say ministry would be easy if it were not for the people. Same with parenting. Same with everything. It is difficult to keep our eyes upon that which is most essential. And when we allow our gaze to fall upon the things of earth such that we are controlled by them, they are not a tool for us, but we are a tool for them, it steals our affections for the Creator and conflict ensues, and peace is divided. And this is what Jerusalem had done. And all the world. When Jerusalem fell, the world did not say, what is God doing? They say, what? I had money in the market there. And when the great cities of earth fall those who are blind to the providence of God do not see it as God's judgment or do not see it as God's interaction in the history of men. They merely see it as something that affects their bottom line. And that is the way the world thinks. But that is not the way that we are to think. And so our response is to be contrary to to the response of the world. When the world sees Jerusalem fall in a day, they mourn because there was money they had in that city. But look at verse 20. When the judgment comes, the saints are to do what? To see it for what it really is. And to understand not only the the nature of her downfall but that it was God who brought it. And look at verse 20. Rejoice. Uh Uh-oh. That is not what we call seeker-sensitive worship. Right? We are told to feel everyone's pain. And yet here, God says of Jerusalem, He, in fact, has answered the prayers of the martyrs and they're pleading that we find in Revelation chapter 6 How long, O Lord, will you wait to visit judgment upon the iniquities of those who put us to death? Christ and the prophets who came before him, and the apostles and others who suffered for Christ after him. Remember, John is writing in the days of Nero. Nero is the one who took human people, real humans, and sacrificed them to lions. And there were people who sat there and watched animals eat real live people. And they screamed at it. Right now in this country, there is a satanic church located in New Mexico that has made a deal in order to be provided unborn infants for the sake of ritual sacrifice. That's happening in this country. But it has been happening, hasn't it? But the priests of those temples wore lab coats. Now they wear what? Black garments. The ugliness of our rebellion is never really displayed until we become so desensitized by it that we don't have to be tricked any longer as to the true heinousness of it. And this is the progress of the judgment of God, what do you think is next? It is Wall Street. It is all of those places in which men place their earthly treasures thinking that this will be enough. This is enough. Now, saints, I'm not saying, Lord, can you do this already? What I'm saying is the inevitable outcome of rebellious men living in fellowship together where the dollar is their God ends up becoming a society in which the dollar brings them destruction. And it's not just this country. Think of Rome. And Rome was no better than Jerusalem. Jerusalem just did it first. But when we see God's judgment against unbelief, we are to rejoice. What, are we to re- what is the content of the song of the saints when we see judgment? Would you rather have a God who is not willing to bring wrath against unbelief? No. He himself being unrighteous and unwilling and unable... To bring sovereign punishment? No. What the martyrs saw as they saw Jerusalem fell was a divine act of judgment because of Jerusalem's violence against the prophets for hundreds of years, violence against Christ, violence against the apostles, and they're cheering Rome and putting the saints to death. And so the early church is learning a very clear lesson. Now, one of the things the early church was learning was Christ is on the throne. He's got it. And though there are temporary, there are temporary um, setbacks or, or sufferings, Christ is on the throne. That he will bring all men under the law into judgment, into justice. No one can escape it. But that don't go the way of Jerusalem. Don't go that way. And we see even today churches that call themselves Christian denominations that say they teach the gospel who have become like Jerusalem. And not only are they fading, and we look at it and we look at it merely in numbers, right? Why are liberal churches on the decline? It's not only because they have nothing to offer the world. It's because God is working against them. Because Christ's kingdom will have no end. Because the seed that is a mustard seed, though it began very small, will one day grow to be the largest tree in the garden because Christ's kingdom will win and is growing. But if you seek the favor of the nations, right? By making alliances with evolutionary biology and you endeavor to wed Scripture... To godless science, which results in what? A perspective that men are but material, matter. And if all you are is a meat bag, and all you are is bone and flesh, then go get yours. But if there is more to life than that, if we have souls that will live forever, does it not make sense to prepare ourselves for the judgment and wrath that is to come? And so when a Christian sees nations rise and nations fall, he or she sees not only the machinations of societal powers, they see the kingdom of Christ coming on earth as it is in heaven. And when the martyrs see the fall of Jerusalem, they rejoice because they see Christ at work in the world. He is just. He is good. But in order to see this way, Calvin says, It is an ancient and true observation that there is a world of vices hidden in the soul of man, but Christian self-denial is the remedy of them all. There is deliverance in store only for the man who gives up his selfishness and whose sole aim is to please the Lord and to do what is right in his sight. Our hearts must be conquered so that we are not conquered as the nations are conquered. Idolatry lay at the source of all divine betrayal for the Jews. And they are not the only ones, but they are the greatest historical example of how far people can fall when they are given over to their lusts and vain ambitions. And so let me do a little bit of application quickly. In order to create for ourselves a robust and durable faith in the light of the tantalizing invitation of the stuff of earth, whether it's peace with wicked men or the pleasures of the wicked men, we must be aware of the danger of compartmentalized piety. Now, I have a book recommendation for you, and that is called The Christian Manifesto or A Christian Manifesto by Francis Schaeffer. And in it, he speaks of a robust Christian life that is able to withstand the idols of this world because we understand that we were put here for the glory and honor of God. And this is what he says. Christianity and spirituality were shut up to a small, isolated part of life. This is the old pietistic movement. The totality of reality was ignored by the pietistic thinking. Let me quickly say that in one sense, Christians should be pietists in that Christianity is not just a set of doctrines, even right doctrines. Every doctrine is in some way to have an effect upon our lives. But the poor side of pietism and its resulting platonic outlook has really been a tragedy, not only in many people's individual lives, but in our total culture. What is he saying? What he is saying is this. Christ wants everything. He wants all of your life. He wants all of life to be governed by his word, not just a small part of it. And the tendency for Christians, in order either to make unnatural or unholy peace treaties with the world that wants to kill us, and take it all away, is to say, we're going to let the world have this while we take this little piece. Right now, we see this happening. We will stay in our churches, and we will let satanic powers have every other lane of life. And what do we end up with? We end up with a Obergefell. We end up with Roe v. Wade. We end up with all of these things that are an expression of satanic power in in big places, in, the, in, the, in, the, in culture itself. And we don't mourn sin where there is sin. And we think more of political machinations than we do the mission and work of the church. To what degree does the world have a controlling interest in your affections. Now, I'm not saying that we should celebrate the death of the West or this empire, but we should put these things in their right place in perspective. Because we know what lasts forever. And the fact of the matter is, though we may not outlive it, there will be those who outlive the death of this country. Or any other country that is in existence today. Certain the glories of many of these nations. But if we are building our hope, if we have established our hope upon markets and places of trade. And not in the kingdom of Christ that it will endure forever. We won't know how to mourn and we won't know how to rejoice. We will worship the wrong thing. Is there something in this world that you love so much that you will not readily give it up in order not only to have Christ, but to suffer for Christ? Because the question is, like it was for Israel, is what do you love? Whom do you love? Do you love the creator of heaven and earth? Or do you love peace with Rome? Because you may not be able to have both. They could not have both what we do not want dear saints is an anemic christianity one that does not profess or apply all of christ to all of life and so whether we have much or we have little whether we have peace or conflict the gospel the gospel can grow in any kind of soil but the gospel requires our whole lives and the end for those who would deny the lordship of Christ for peace with a pagan nation will receive even as Jerusalem received. Look at verse 23. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. And the voice of bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived and in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all who were slain on the earth dear saints may we fear and honor and love the lord may we love the bridegroom may we love the one who is king of heaven and earth so that we might remain fast faithful let's pray lord grant